This is episode number 123 of the Rising Man podcast with Andrew Smiler. How do you measure a man? Blessings and good rising to you, family. Jetty Azuma here, bringing you another amazing installment of the Rising Man podcast. If we're meeting for the first time, let me introduce myself. I am the host of this podcast and the founder of the Rising Man movement. Our mission here at Rising Man is to initiate an entire generation of men into power and purpose, period. We think this is how we as men can make our greatest impact on the future of humanity and the future of our planet. But none of it's possible without community. None of it happens without culture. So before we engage in our conversation today, I want to invite you to become a bigger part of the Rising Man family. All Rising Man content, events, and information is living over at risingman.org. If you're a man without a men's circle, or you want to join us on one of our four-day men's initiations called Compass Out in the Wilderness, or you just want to become a bigger part of the Rising Man family, we've got opportunities for you, and everything is labeled and described over at risingman.org. So whatever it is you're looking for, whatever it is you want to get into, whatever that next level edge is for you, step forward. I challenge you. I challenge you to step forward. Become a bigger part of what we're doing here and see, just see, just trust and see what the results have in your life by stepping forward and stepping up. All right, my guest for today is Dr. Andrew Smiler. He is a PhD, an author and therapist based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He's the author of the award-winning Dating and Sex, A Guide for the 21st Century Teen Boy, and co-author of the best-selling textbook, The Masculine Self. Dr. Smiler is a past president of the Society for the Psychological Study of Men and Masculinities and a past board president of MaleSurvivor.org. In this episode, we discuss the confusion around masculinity and manhood across the generations, how creativity, artistry, and sensitivity became associated with females, and why that may be a disservice to some men. We analyze the inequity between men and women over the years and the risk of categorizing men and women with broad strokes. We talked about what happens when we are unable to provide, protect, and procreate as men, the long-standing impact on the life force we possess as men, and the importance of cross-generational conversations amongst men of all ages. Without further ado, Andrew Smiler. Rising Man family, I've got another amazing man on the show here today, here to bring some wisdom all the way from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Is that how they say it out there? <laughs> <laughs> That's how the locals say it. Let's just say North Carolina. <laughs> oh, anyway, man, it's great to have you on here. I'm so grateful that you agreed to be on here because of the particular field of expertise you have. How many years have you been studying boyhood, masculinity, and, and maleness for? Well, thanks for having me, Jetty. In one way or another, I've either been working with teen boys and families or studying adolescents and young adult men since about 1990. So I guess it's 30 years now, which is impossible because I'm only like 29, but I'm sure that works out somehow. <laughs> they say time is relative. I think there's, you know, quantum physics and stuff that we could, you know, explain that with. Absolutely. I'm as old as my mother was for my entire life. She was always 29. So. That's right. <laughs> it that. still is. That's right. <laughs> Excellent, man. Well, uh, grateful to tap into your well of wisdom here, especially for all the men who are listening. I find that the question about masculinity 
and manhood is something that most of us are still figuring out for ourselves. And so I'm interested to see what all of your years of research and work in the field has revealed. I usually start off by asking my guests the same question. What is the difference between a boy and a man? But I'm going to add one <laughs> layer to it for you. Sure, okay? What is the difference between boy, man, and masculinity? Okay, so I'm going to take that in two parts. Mm -hmm. And the difference between a boy and a man is actually pretty simple in most cultures and even here in America. A boy is a juvenile and a man is an adult. It mm -hmm. rephrased that as, as indicating immaturity and maturity, but really in kind of the, the broadest and most commonly used definitions, certainly in legal language, if we talk about boys being under 18 and men being adults and 18 and up, that's the big difference. It's one of maturity or status. Difference between boy or man and masculinity. I'm glad we have a little time to talk about that. <laughs> um, I am going to go with the very academic sounding definition of masculinity that says that masculinity is a set of traits or behaviors or attitudes or what have you that a culture says a man should have. So it's really masculinity in some ways we might think of it as a culture deal or a culture prescription or what makes someone an adult male or a competent adult male. Interesting. So is that also your definition of masculinity or has that evolved based on what you've seen in the past 30 years? No, I'll go with that. And I, I yeah. really like that because it sounds really specific. You know, it's what the culture says that men should be. Uh -huh. And then you actually get to fill in the details of what does the culture say a man should be? Right. Well, let's let's go there. So just from your perspective, for, for context purposes, how old are you? I am, how old am I? I am 51. 51, okay. Or and, I'm 29, and, whatever. Uh, 29, right. <laughs> we'll, we'll go with 59. I grew up in the 70s and 80s. Okay, so you grew up in the 70s and 80s. I was born in 87. I'm going to be 33 years old this year. So this will be a good dialogue between two different generations of yeah. what, what, are those, what are those qualities or, or characteristics that define masculinity? So I'll let you go first. So, what, do you, what would you say is masculine? So, okay, in, in America today, as far as I can tell, we're really in a moment of transition. We're mm. not really sure what it is that we want men to be these days. On one side, we have this image that's promoted, particularly through Hollywood products that says men are, or the most successful men, the ideal man, is someone who is decisive and takes action, uses threats and violence as needed to achieve his goals. In most cases, he is surrounded by and appreciates attractive sexual partners or potential sexual partners doesn't necessarily act on that. And I can say more about that, but, but certainly likes to look and whether those are female partners or male partners or all of the above. That's kind of the image we see in Hollywood, see coming out of Hollywood. This is a guy who has status and seeks status and that, that may be kind of broadly recognized status, like having a lot of money, having wealth or having power. It might be status within a particular community, mm -hmm. but it's someone who is moving towards the top or trying to be at the top or is already at the top and trying to stay there. Mm. And that's, that's the definition that we tend to get and that we've really embraced over the last 30 years since actually the 1980s. Mm -hmm. But it's not the only image we have. We also have other images that folks might call, might describe as a little bit softer. We can talk about good guys guys who work hard, who are responsible, who are respectful, 
we might talk about them as honest, as honorable, and they also, you know, they are also very present. Not quite the the alphas, if you will, that we see in certain flavors of Hollywood and cultural products, but they're there and they're actually pretty numerous. Mm. But and that image, that's a longer standing image, goes back quite a ways and doesn't really get a whole lot of publicity these days, but shows up a lot in like Hollywood comedies. You think about the characters that someone like Ray Romano tends to play, Mm -hmm. um, or some of the characters on Modern Family, a lot of the the good dads that we see on TV now. These are these kind of good guys or average Joes. Mm -hmm. Okay, let me, let me, (laughs) there's a lot in there that I want to jump into, which is great. Now, now, so just to be clear, it sounds like you're using societal reference points for masculinity and what you describe. Is this also your definition of masculinity and how you hold it? Or is this just what you're seeing as, a, I guess, an objective observer of, of culture? As observer and commentator, <laughs> this is what I hold. As far as my personal life, I tend towards that, that good guy, average Joe kind of definition. Gotcha. Um, okay. That's kind of the, the image or the character I live. I use a lot of media examples because they're convenient references Mm-hmm. If I had to, to explain all of these different types in detail, instead of you know being able to point to some some images we all know, this conversation mm-hmm. would not flow nearly as well. Sure, sure. Well, I, and I appreciate that. So this is this is great. Let me so let me give you a little bit of just my perspective and how I've wrapped my mind around this because I've had hundreds of conversations with men around their perspectives. Like I said before we started recording, I'm just deeply fascinated mm-hmm. with the fact that we don't have a norm, I guess, or, or like the a, a particular definition or example of masculinity that we all subscribe to. Mm-hmm. That part of the that's part of the problem is just this confusion. Mm-hmm. And so the way I wrap my mind around it is that w- what you described I would characterize as different portraits of men and how men are doing different versions of masculinity in the world because my definition of masculinity is specifically the qualities and characteristics are logic decisiveness action oriented mm-hmm. solution based constantly looking for a mode of service that he can give back to and the element of fire you know fire being very having the ability to be destructive or give life, you know, this, this element of that. And so I contrast that with feminine and I'll ask you what feminine is in a second, because for me, feminine is the, it's like the yin and yang, right? It's the balance, the counterpart to the masculine, the, the balance, the equalizer. And for me, feminine is more creative, less structured, less rigorous, but more undefined artsy flow, the flowiness (laughs) of of femininity. And I'll also tag on to that before you tell us your version of feminine, mm-hmm. that I think that both of those can live and do live inside of every human, whether we're man, woman, male, female, whatever we want to call ourselves. I think we all have a different ratio of those characteristics. Mm-hmm. So first of all, how would you define feminine as a you know counterpart to masculinity? And then how do you resolve all that? You know, for the most part, I don't really define feminine. In part because because using this idea that you know masculinity is the cultural norms or the cultural ideal of the moment, then okay, so is femininity. But you know when you look at our history, these have shifted. You know if we go back two hundred years, we have the Romantic poets, guys like Wadsworth and Lord Byron, and men had passions. Those were talked about explicitly. 
And men walked arm in arm and told their best friend, I love you. And they didn't need to be drunk to say that. Many of our greatest artists, or at least the folks who've been preserved in history, even from 200 years ago, are men. So, you know, this, this definition keeps shifting. And while today we may see men as logical and rational, and women as more emotional and talk about these as complementary sides or counterbalancing or whatever, that that's a relatively recent definition. Mm-hmm. We didn't, we didn't yeah. used to do that 150 years ago. And we yeah. can talk about some of that history and what has changed and why it has changed. But I'm not sure that, that that's a definition or that's a standard I particularly want to buy into. Okay. I agree with you because it, what, I'm, what I'm starting to see is that having generalized labels doesn't really serve the, serve the problem that we're dealing with anyway. Because really, what I, when I look at men, we'll, we'll put them in quotes, men no, who men are- Men is a large are, undifferentiated group. Right. Who are, who are perceived to be adults because of any of the other cultural indicators, you know, over the age of 21, they're paying all their bills, they're living independently, paying a mortgage, married, whatever it is, but who actually don't function at that, at that level of adulthood that that's, that's an essential problem. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. most of the time I'm finding that men don't, don't even have a clear definition of what manhood or masculinity is for themselves. So if, they don't, if we don't have that for ourselves, then how could we possibly function from something that we all quote unquote agree to? So I, I think it's actually more powerful for a man to decide and discover that for himself. How, who, who is the kind of man I want to be, whether I'm calling it a masculine or feminine or a combination or some other language that we use, but more about what is that, what are those set of qualities and values that matter to me as an individual? Yeah, I agree with you. One of my favorite questions to ask when I'm speaking in a public setting or with my therapy clients is what kind of man do you want to be? Mm. Then, mm. then it starts to get into some of the, these character traits or activities or whatnot uh-huh. and not so much, you know, oh, I'm just going to be, you know, I am a real man and like end of, sex, end of conversation or I don't want to be feminine, end of conversation. You know, this, what kind of man reminds everybody in the room that there are options here. There's not just one answer. Right. So let's say that we decided just to use the word adult for now, because I think that we could all agree that the natural progression of development, anyone who goes through the course of development at some part of them wants to be an adult. I'm sure a lot of us don't want to, (laughs) but some part of it is we want to get to that next, that next stage of adulthood, even if there's the parts that we don't want of it. it's, It's got its moments. (laughs) <laughs> it, it has its moments. It definitely does. But I'll tell you what, I didn't read the fine print on the brochure <laughs> when I signed up for it. <laughs> but let's just suggest that, that that is somewhere that we all want to go. So how do, would you, if we circle back, because you mm-hmm. said juvenile and adult is the difference between boy and man, how would you define an adult? So I'm going to dodge the question a little bit, but also answer it a little bit. <laughs> then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reference my favorite anthropologist, David Gilmore in 1990, published this book called Manhood in the Making looked at manhood rituals for boys or men and in a number of cultures around the world. And what he found was that no matter where he looked, the rituals emphasized really three things, which he summed up as the three Ps. Cultures want to know if a boy can provide, can protect, or can procreate. Some Mm. combination of those really characterized every ritual, every promotion from juvenile to adult that he saw. You can also remember that this, so those are the three Ps, protecting, providing, and procreating. You can do it as the three Fs, which are feeding, fighting, and 
there's another F there. <laughs> That's the one. You know, and, and even if you look at the U.S., and again, prior to about 1900, or really prior to about 1950, the emphasis was largely on providing. And, and in various ways, we have codified in law, or had codified in law, that men were really the only ones who were going to have access to the financial system, to the better jobs. You know, for a long time, we kept women out of higher paying fields or out of the workforce altogether. So we really made that men's task was to become a good provider. And even if you go back, you go back to say the 1950s or 60s, that, that in lots of ways was the question, like, what do you do for a living? Which is still what we tend to ask a guy when we meet him for the first time. We don't what he does mm-hmm. for fun. We ask him what he does for work. And we call it mm-hmm. living, not even work. Right. So this, this providing thing is very high on our cultural priority list. You know, that, and that has long, long been a thing. Protecting, you know, if you think about the U.S. prior to 1900, when most people lived in rural areas, that was a bigger deal than it is today. Mm-hmm. No, if the bad guys were coming, if they were bandits or other people that, that didn't have resources or whatever. And, you know, if you're living out on a ranch somewhere, you had to be willing to protect your family. Not necessarily mm-hmm. like go out and seek vengeance, mm-hmm. but willing to protect. Mm-hmm. Have that so much today. Less than 2% of American families. Our military families, we don't, you know, sending kids into the military, particularly boys into the military, is not a common thing these days, the way that it once was. Certainly the, the armed forces had a lot more cachet in the 50s coming out of World War II than they did, say, in the 70s after Vietnam. So we don't see as much about protecting. And then procreating, like, doesn't exactly give you that cred because people are still like, okay, you had a kid. So what? You're still not really showing a whole lot of maturity there. Or they sure. say things like, okay, now you got to get serious. Now you got to really be a man and buckle down. Mm-hmm. So that one doesn't, doesn't quite carry the, the meaning that it used to do, say, 100 years ago or 200 years ago, where if you got a girl pregnant, then you were getting married. Mm-hmm. If there was a shotgun involved, you were getting married. And you, were gonna, <laughs> or you were expected to become that respectable guy. Right. Didn't always work out, right. of course, but that was a clear cultural expectation. Right. So, the, so those are David Gilmore's three. And, and it sounds like you're not totally invested in all three of those, especially for the, maybe the modern male yeah, adult. I, I think that, you know, our culture over the last hundred years, as we have gone through industrialization and mechanization and into markets and mass production, as we shifted from being a mostly rural country to a mostly urban country, I think we have really shifted and tended to emphasize the provider role over the protector or the procreator. Mm-hmm. And I think, and again, you know, it's we ask a guy what he does for a living, not what he does for money, um, and that's our first question. So we're pretty clear right. what's important here, and uh, right. work is life in the way that we phrase it. Yeah. You know, as we've shifted to a service economy or a knowledge economy over the last 20 or 30 years, if we think about the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, that really decimated the building trades, a lot of guys who are in, quote unquote, traditionally male fields or heavily male dominated fields, we have more evidence that of how much the U.S. focuses on that provider role. Sure. And, and the fact that in lots of ways today, like, we're still not entirely sure what to do with guys who, who have desk jobs. 
I mean, a lot of us have desk jobs, right? And mm-hmm. supposed to become professionals. And this is why they send 60% of American high school seniors to college. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, we don't, we don't think about guys with professional jobs, guys with desk jobs as particularly manly. Yeah. That's, that doesn't inspire us in, in the same way as like, say, carpenters or plumbers are like, yeah, that's a man's work. Sure. And I mean, that's, I think that's a great characterization of our society. Cause I, I think you're speaking for at least the majority. I agree that it's changing. I agree that there's a lot of forward thinking, progressive minds out there, but if we're really looking at the underlying messages that mass media has taught us, that's, that would absolutely be the norm. So let me, let me throw a few things back at, for my own curiosity provider protector and procreator mm-hmm. I, I think of each of those let's just take them one by one so a provider if i'm a man if i identify as a man and i'm incapable of providing for my family there that would definitely elicit a feeling of shame unworthiness less mm-hmm. than so there's something to that whether Absolutely. it's whether it's media or culture or if it's just something right. more on a dna level protector I think if I if I if a home invader came into my house and I wasn't able to defend my family, that would absolutely crush any sense of masculinity or manliness I had in my body, even pr- promoting a fear in me that that might happen and I wouldn't know what to do someday. Mm-hmm. So I think there's definitely some merit to that. And procreator, I have two children, so I didn't have this <laughs> particular issue, but. Right. Not being able to produce offspring, not being fertile, mm-hmm. meaning that you can't procreate would, would produce a lot of the same sensations, I imagine. And I know it does for some men because I know men yeah. who have that. So yeah. I think that there's some merit to that. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, I mean, Gilmore found this all over the globe. Like this is, he didn't just sit in his office and make this up. Like he, sure. culture after culture, like these were the touchstones that kind of all these different cultures came back to. Right. But then that's why I think there's so much confusion as a society because it's going back to these two characterizations of men that you gave in the beginning, right? Kind of like the classic tough guy takes Mm -hmm. things by force archetype versus a modern nice guy takes care of people, but kind of is a doormat and people can walk all over him. There's two ends of a spectrum. Neither of those men are accepted by our society. At least those aren't the men that we go looking for. You know, I, I, and cause I talk to women a lot too right. and, and women will either say, Oh, I don't, I don't want, I just don't, don't just want a tough guy who's going to treat me like shit, but they're also like, right. but I want a man who's going to stand on his own merits and not let me push him around everywhere. Right. Oh yeah. There is a lot of, of, I'm just going to go with mixed messaging around it is we're looking for, cause we don't, you know, the cultural conversation isn't about, you know, good provider, good protector, someone who can procreate. Mm-hmm. Cultural conversation is about equal rights or good with kids or nice or, well, kind of a bad boy, but only like kind of. Or, right. you know, like, like that's where the cultural conversation goes. It very much gets into specific images or specific traits right. without runs back to these markers that help distinguish boys from men. Right. right. I mean, think about a provider like that's there's a less clear today than it used to be, but a fairly clear line between someone who can provide for a partner and kids they might have and someone who can't. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's reasonably straightforward. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, here's mm-hmm. here's my argument to it is that the reason or the bigger problem is that we've made all three of those indicators of manhood mm-hmm. completely obsolete. 
for argument's sake, right? So let's just take the provider aspect. There's plenty of women now who can make better wages than than some men do. Not mm-hmm. not universally. There's still an imbalance. Right. But a woman can be a single mother and take care of a family. Not mm-hmm. easily, but but can do it. Right. So we don't need men to be providers anymore, so to speak. Sure. We don't need men for protection because you can go out and buy a gun. You can, you know, hire a security guard. You can mm-hmm. any number of different things. You don't need one person to be your source of protection. Right. Right. And then procreation, you can go to a sperm bank and get yourself impregnated in vitro right now. Sure. At least it looks like that we're, we're trying to make men more and more obsolete for one reason or another and taking some of the biological gifts that men have as, you know, I'm talking about the male gender mm-hmm. that we're just physically more, you know, physically stronger, physically bigger, right. capable in some ways differently than females. We just made it irrelevant. You don't even have to go hunting anymore. You you hunt at the grocery store. <laughs> That's right. Uh, which so, does, which does feel like hunting here in the days of COVID nineteen, <laughs> right? In ways that it just used to feel like grazing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as as our society has grown, as our culture has put more and more things in place, some of them for the public good, like police officers, and some of them, you know, private concern concerns like in vitro fertilization. We have in some ways made men or those traditional roles or worldwide roles for men less important. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, for most women, they don't actually earn enough to pay for all of those things. Mm -hmm. They can be single providers. And I was raised by by a single mom in the Mm -hmm. 70s and 80s. My parents separated, my parents divorced when I was seven. Mm -hmm. And I'm the youngest of three kids. So Mm -hmm. that was not not an easy thing. You know, she could do it. It was tough. It remains difficult to be a single parent, male or female, especially if you don't have one of those top echelon jobs. You know, if you're in the top 10% or top 20%, like you can do that and you can maybe afford a bodyguard if you feel like you need that kind of security or or at least a home security system, right? We've made mm-hmm. yay mass production, yay mass <laughs> markets. You know, maybe you can afford IVF. It's rather expensive. Insurance doesn't cover it unless you have some, again, some super high-end insurance. But, you know, if you look at the average household in the U.S. and the average household has two earners, the average household is somewhere between fifty-five dollars and $60,000 a year for income. And that is, again, typically with two earners. Mm. That's pretty tough to, to do all that stuff on. It is much better if you can have somebody else who's going to help with it. Yeah. And again, you know, there's nothing that says that he has to make more. Mm-hmm. You know, providing doesn't mean being the only one to provide. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean being the one who provides more money. Right. But we don't, but you still need to provide in some way. Right. Right. And, and again, like we could, we could push back on this cultural conversation, you know, <laughs> who provide, why, you know, who says that he has to provide more? That's like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with that. And I guess, Looking at it from a solution perspective, because like I said, I, I spent a lot of time in the question and in the, in, in the discovery of what is going on here. Mm-hmm. But I find that what people really want to get to is they want to get to, well, what can we do about it? And I, I, I'm, I'm for that too, and, and understanding yeah. what's going on here. So if we go back to those three things, provider, protector, and procreator, I, I, my opinion as a 33-year-old man mm-hmm. is that we have outrageously failed to prepare our young men or boys to be any of those three things. 
to be a provider for a family. I mean, it was one of the hardest things I've ever stepped into in my life. And I'm still figuring it out on a day-to-day basis. There's no security or comfort around, (laughs) around what I do (laughs) as a provider in my household. And I watched my dad do it my whole life. And yet I still felt wildly unprepared when I got to that level. Yeah. We, we do a pretty crappy job of it. And here in the U.S., at least, we don't have kind of the cultural institutions that help boys move into this. And parents don't have, often don't have the kinds of conversations that their sons need. Mm-hmm. You know, we know a lot of my, my research when I was starting off on my academic career looked at dating and sexuality. Uh, mm-hmm. And what was normative about that? What's typical? And about 60% of boys been a while since I looked at these numbers, said that they had some version of the talk with their parents. But for mm. most of them, the talk was less than 10 minutes. And they mm. came down to the three don'ts. Don't mm-hmm. I'm pregnant, don't get a disease, and for God's sake, just don't have sex, or at least don't. <laughs> right. That's not really, I mean, you know, some of that is useful. But if that's all that boys are getting from their parents about sex and about dating, that is woefully insufficient. Right. That most American parents don't talk to their kids about money and money management in any real way. Right. You know, one of the questions I used to ask the teens that I would work with, and the, especially the young adults that I would work with, the guys in their twenties, I'd ask them if they knew what their family income made, what their parent, what their parents made for money. And it got to the point where I heard, "I have no idea." So many times, but I just stopped asking the question. Right. It wasn't useful. It was like, yeah. Okay. I don't, I don't need to ask that anymore. It's not getting me anywhere as a therapist. Right. We don't teach our boys in particular what they need to know to be a good provider, to be mm-hmm. a dating partner, or a good husband. And so they are willfully unprepared. And also, we teach them that they're supposed to be independent and figure it out for themselves. <laughs> yeah, right. Talk about a mixed you, message. <laughs> right. So not only are you unprepared, you can't ask anybody for help. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. And you know what you're describing is exactly, I, I'm the statistic in your, in your research right there. You know, I, I never had the talk with my parents. Mm-hmm. I remember even being in the car with my mom and she said to my dad, so when are you going to do your fatherly <laughs> duties? And he just like, ignored the question. And I'm sitting back here going like, guys, I've, I've been having a conversation about sex for like at least eight years now. And, and you know, nothing you're going to tell me is new, right. but you know, just that I remember the discomfort around that and still have never had a conversation about sex with my father. Yeah. So that's one thing. Never knew what the family income was. Didn't even really understand mm-hmm. taxes at all. I thought taxes was just something that somebody else handled. So yeah. when I had to file my first tax return, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. What, what, what do I have to, I have to do something here? Right. So that was another thing. And that's just the basics, right? I mean, yeah. my mom taught me how to balance a checkbook. Nice. Which, be, which you know, that was back when we used to have checkbooks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that was the extent of it. So again, like the, the the lack of preparation around what it means to be a provider, what it means to, you know, I think mm-hmm. what we touched on with, you know, sexual relationships and relationships in general falls under that procreation category for yeah. me. So there's that whole rabbit hole to go down to, but even the protector. So I'm, I'm interested about that one because most of us, fortunately don't have to protect our families on a regular basis from villains, intruders, invaders, or outside threats, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's mostly a battle against the, the financial institution and trying to pay your bills. Right. But 
physical harm is not typically something most of us has to deal with, fortunately. At least, we'll, I'll say here in the United States. Well, um, you know, as long as we're talking about the middle class and up, right? If, if you live in a bad neighborhood, as a lot of boys do, that is something that you you may deal with on a regular basis, on a daily basis. Okay, so uh, fair enough. Thank you for, yeah, that's that's a good dose of reality. There's There are some people who are completely or mostly immune to that and mm-hmm. others who are still not. Yet, regardless of what your situation is, most boys are not being taught how to protect themselves or how to protect other people that they love. So why have we failed to do that? What did we put more emphasis on than those three fundamental things that still seem so relevant? Yeah. I think in a lot of ways we've just abdicated. Hmm. I don't think we have necessarily put our focus on anything else. I think we have just kind of stepped back and taken this very hands-off approach. And and especially for those of us who live in fairly decent sized cities, you know, it doesn't need to be the top twenty; it can be the top hundred. You know, and anything that's above a hundred thousand, or probably anything that's above fifty thousand. You know, if we're not actively talking, having these conversations with our sons, mm-hmm. then who is? And and do we ever get feedback on that? Right? I grew up as a child of the seventies and the eighties. You know, it was still an era when. Teachers called parents, and if your your mom or your dad got a call from school, like you were in big trouble. Mm-hmm. And you know those those calls were usually bad things. Not congratulations. <laughs> right. And parents <laughs> deferred to teachers, right? Right. We mm. this this village, as you know, we all learned this this African expression through Hillary Clinton two decades ago. That it takes a village. Like, we had the village forty years ago. We don't mm. really have that anymore. We are much mm. more isolated. The contact is a lot less direct and it's a lot, or it may be direct, but it's a lot less personal. It's not a voice on the phone. It's an email from Mm. the teacher. So it's not really a conversation. It's certainly not likely to be your neighbor, someone who lives down the street from you. Mm. Take it for what you want. Religious participation, participation in fraternal organizations, all of those community organizations where we used to get to know the other people in the community, where we used to and kind of create that village that raised our kids, that's mostly gone. Mm. So with parents not stepping up to fill that void, our boys are really kind of on their own in lots of ways. And they have access to much more information than you and I, you or I did growing up because right. they carry the internet in their pocket, most of them. Sure. Right. Which, which creates a very unique and interesting problem. I don't think it's something that we can tap into history for any kind of solution. So even when we talk about things like men's work and this men's movement, I find that a lot of people, there's enthusiasm around it. There's enthusiasm about a new renewal of masculinity, kind of a reset of the culture of manhood and manliness and what it means. But nobody really has the answer. There's a lot of this, you know, trying to be the first one to to reach the Pacific coast, <laughs> you know, just try to shooting, shooting, shooting arrows and kind of seeing where they land. You know, the, the, the leading edge of that to me is this conversation about lone wolfing or, or being a self-made person. And a lot of people talk about how we've, you know, we've, we've really screwed ourselves as guys when we're trying to do it all by ourselves, And mm-hmm. that often gets us to level one where, okay, now we're willing to open up with other men. We see that we're not going to die if we, if we're a little vulnerable and share <laughs> right. some of our vulnerabilities with other men, in fact, may realize that we have more in common and more to relate to with one another. But that's still such a far cry from what I hear or what I think about when it, we say we need a village. 
Because that's just starting to talk about what's really going on. We're not actually getting to how do we cohabitate? What does mm-hmm. it look like when we're actually functioning? When I, when I walk outside and I see my neighbor's kid doing something he shouldn't and I go have a conversation with him about it like an uncle would uh-huh. versus just like, hmm, that fucking kid over there. Someone should rate, tell that kid what to do right. <laughs> or raise that kid. Right. You know? So uh, what are your thoughts on that whole piece? Um I, I think that's a, a great question and that in a lot of ways is kind of the big issue, one of the big issues for America today. Mm-hmm. And, and we're certainly seeing some of that play out here in, here in our time of COVID-19 with all of us being, or so many of us, most of us being restricted in our movement and starting to talk to our neighbors in ways that most Americans haven't for decades. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think there is some potential and, and some real kind of in the moment happening of folks reconnecting with the people they live next to, mm-hmm. not just relying on kind of affinity groups or echo chambers that where, you know, we only talk to the people we already like and have a lot in common with. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, if you were, you know, and I'll, I'll go back to the, the era of the 50s and 60s, it was perfect or fabulous in all of the ways, but because it is something that most of us can still imagine. We have seen it on TV. We may have older relatives who were there and can tell us about it firsthand. We had those, com- those kinds of communities. You know, men joined fraternal organizations. Men you know, participated in their houses of worship. You know, there was no such thing as traveling teams that were kind of elite, right? We hadn't professionalized kids' sports in that way you know, <laughs> for fun. And so it, it was all about creating community and not just about like creating skill, creating, you know, the best athlete you could. Mm. So that may we, spe- we start specializing our kids. You know, I went to growing up from the time I was, I don't know, six. I went to these summer day camps. I would be in one camp for, you know, eight weeks with all the same kids. And we would do, you know, 12 different things a day for half an hour at a time. And that, mm. it wasn't like baseball camp or soccer camp or craft camp for one week. Um, right. You know, it was, you know, it was much more about making us well-rounded and mm-hmm. giving it, keeping us busy and giving us people to connect with, not about creating skills. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that the solution is really multi-layered and, and multi-generational. I don't think that you and I are going to arrive at any conclusions in this conversation. In fact, what? I think just, uh, well, you know, I'm always an optimist, but I'm also, I've, I'm becoming more of a realist in my <laughs> old age. <laughs> but I do think that just as I'm reflecting on this, a man from your generation and a man in this generation having a conversation about this is a huge sign of progress. Absolutely. Um, and I'm glad I've had a couple of, more than a couple at this point. I guess I've had six, six to eight guys from your generation on this show sharing their insights. And it's always, it's always a really interesting dialogue because I, I still carry a lot of my generational perspective into sure. this. And, and it's good for us to, to cross the lines a little bit. In fact, I think that's even going beyond that, being able to sit with elders again. Is something mm-hmm. that I'm very passionate about. You know, my my original trade is as a physical therapist, and I get to spend time with elderly folks, and mm-hmm. just just seeing the the circumstances that we put our elderly folks in in the mm-hmm. last season, in the last sometimes years, months, weeks of life, yeah. is that they're surrounded by people who don't know them, who don't know their story, and frankly, who don't love them. You know, they care for them, they're compassionate, but don't love them. No, and that's 
that to me, that's one of the most archetypal things I think of when I think of village and a village-based society is we take care of each other from, from birth to death and beyond. We don't yeah. stop. Yeah. And, and we have definitely lost that, right? We have, we have commodified that and, and capitalism has taken hold of that because there's money to be made and nobody wants to be inconvenienced, especially, you know, inconvenienced from having a job and being able to provide for their family. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, let me ask you this then. Uh, sure. we, we, we know that you're 29, but let's say <laughs> hypothetically you were a man in your 50s okay. who, who had had several <laughs> decades of experience in this line of work. What would you tell myself and other men in this generation in regards to how we can be part of the solution or, or even just taking the next steps forward based on how you see it? Um, okay, that's a good question. So as a piece of advice and not just as something to reflect on, um, I would tell you, or I would encourage you to very deliberately, very intentionally try to be a good man. And you can find these particular elements of goodness in, in any religion, in lots of civic organizations, be honest, be trustworthy, be responsible of your word, you know, live up to what you say you're going to do and be careful with your word. Don't just, you know, promise anything. Like, think about what's coming out of your mouth. Be curious about the world. Don't assume that you know it all or you understand just because you've learned a little bit about it. Be curious about other people as part of that. And you know, try to leave the world a better place than when you found it or try to leave the, the spaces you're in better than, than when you found it. Mm, yeah, no, I really like that. I think, that's, I think that's simple advice for anyone to live by. And if, if we were all really doing that to the best of our ability, this world may look different yeah. than it currently does. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, yeah, but I, but I do see a lot of opportunities for for us moving forward, and I don't think that I don't need I don't think we need to throw the whole thing out and and, no. and reset it. I think, but I do think that we in this conversation alone really expose some of the some of the voids that have been created. I just think about probably your your parents' generation and what you might've gotten. Cause you're, you're kind of in like my parents' generation. They're a little bit older than you, but mm -hmm. they're kind of in your generation. I know that they, my dad got a lot of that stoicism. He got a lot of that, you know, buckle down and take care of your family. That's the only thing that matters is you taking care of your family. And, and so that's, that's where he parented from. Cause that's all that he really knew. Uh, unless we broaden our perspectives of what that could be and decide for ourselves, who is the man that I want to be, like you had said before, then we just keep perpetuating a cycle and, and missing elements that might be more, more useful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do have a few last questions to wrap up with, uh, but sure. is there anything else that you want to say on the topic first? Anything else that was left unsaid or that you'd want to share with? Um, I could go for family? hours. So I'm just going to let you ask your question. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure you could. We'll do a follow-up someday. We'll go somewhere yeah, else. Yeah, that would someday. be great. Uh, okay. So this is like the lightning round. Okay. Right? Knee-jerk reaction right off, the, right off the top. Minnesota okay. Twins. <laughs> okay, good. All right. What is one thing that you've learned in your life that you wish you knew when you were 18? Oh my God. That, and this is for me personally, that I am more capable and braver than I was raised to think I was. Mm. Yeah. Oof. I can resonate with that. And what do you think is the most important value to have as a man or a human? I'm going to go with two, I think. And they're, they're kind of related, but different phrasings. 
I'm going to go with being honest and being true to your word. Love that. And uh, before I cut you loose, where can people go to find out more about you, follow you, get involved in what you're doing? I know you've, you've published a few books. So, so where, do, where would you like to direct people? Sure. The easiest place is my website, which is just my name, andrewsmiler.com. You can find my books, including the award-winning Dating and Sex, a guide for the 21st century teen boy, pretty much anywhere you find books. It's, you know, all the... All the big sellers have it, and even some of your your local bookstores. And we'll make a real pitch for local bookstores uh, here in our era of quarantine. Yes. Awesome. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking time out of your day away from your family to be here and be part of this conversation. I really I really enjoyed just jumping in with you and, and hearing what you had to say. And yeah, I look forward to bringing you back on again sometime. Ho- hopefully it doesn't have to be a pandemic that gets <laughs> us all together like yeah. this, but further down the line, man, we'll, we'll, we'll jump back in and have another conversation about men and masculinity. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jetty. It's been a pleasure. All right, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was great to have a dialogue with a man from a different generation, with a different perspective, but finding common ground amongst the missions and messages that we carry in the world as men. I think it's so important. I think it's so valuable for us to have these cross-generational dialogues about how we want to show up as men in the world, that every spoke of the wheel is important. And so we need to be communicating with one another and sharing the wisdom that we've accumulated along the way, up and down the ladder. Wisdom is not one directional. So I hope you guys got a lot from Dr. Smiler. Please go check out and follow everything that he's doing. He's doing some incredible work out there, especially on the East Coast in North Carolina. If you're out that way, hit him up and make sure you guys are doing everything you can to become a bigger part of the Rising Man community whether it's signing up for the virtual men's fire circles or applying to join us on our next four-day vision fast called Compass. Everything that you can get information for is over at risingman.org. Please check out the links for show notes and everything also over at risingman.org for each and every episode. Subscribe and follow us wherever you're listening to the podcast and drop some comments with your biggest takeaways from each episode. I love reading those messages, love seeing the comments and exactly what's landing for you guys. Please check us out on Instagram at Rising Man Movement and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash The Rising Man Movement. Shout outs to my power team, Ryan Wilcox, Julian Subic, Rowan Tyne, Sean Offenbach, and Mark Rose. Four out of five of these guys are the members of Wayfinders Media. These guys are doing incredible work out there, so make sure you guys go and look up the Wayfinders Media team. These guys are the ones that produce every single podcast episode, every single video that I've put out is entirely due to these guys. They're doing great work. So if you like what they're doing and you need some support, Wayfinders Media is where it's at. Until next time, rise up and claim your destiny.